We need You to illuminate Your Word. To reveal the deep things of the Gospel. Father, we never graduate from the Gospel. We never move on to deeper and better things in the cross. Father, this is who Jesus is. So this is who we are. Father, I pray that um, I pray that we approach the understanding of Jesus and His mission on our knees. May this give us a great gratefulness and a thankfulness and a joy. May this remove burdens. May this give direction. And Father, we ask that if there's somebody here today who who doesn't know the Gospel, who doesn't know Jesus in a way that saves, Father, we pray that uh, You open their heart today. We love You, Father. Thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. As we said last week, we're right in the middle of the book of Mark. We're in the middle of the book of Mark for a reason. Um, We've seen eight chapters go by, and have you noticed that Jesus is kind of a mystery to a lot of people, and He likes that. He likes that. He's he's spoken mostly in parables. If He talks about Himself, He speaks in parables. There are people who understand who Jesus is more than others, uh, but for the most part, Jesus has tried to keep a lower profile. He's being very discerning about who he shares the truth with, knowing that some people will misconstrue his mission. Some people will see him perform these miracles and want a a Messiah who who can raise an army and kick Rome out. Knowing all this, Jesus has has kind of been on the down low. Well, in Mark chapter 8, that changes. That changes. Jesus speaks, it'll say, it'll say here, Jesus speaks plainly about who he is. For the first time. And we will see how controversial the plain truth about Jesus is. We will see that even in our hearts as believers, sometimes the truth about Jesus is hard to grasp. So, let's read together. Jesus has fed uh, the 4,000. He he has given sight to a blind man. He asked the disciples who people say that He is. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And then verse 29 is where we'll pick it up together. Verse 29 goes like this. And He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered Him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now we've all heard this our entire lives, many of us. Some of us may be hearing this for the first time. I would love that. Uh, But this is the first time the disciples are hearing this. Verse 32, And he said this plainly, And look at the reaction. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Alright, there's a lot in that passage. We're going to take the first half this week, and Lord willing, we'll take the second half next week. So we get, we get kind of an interesting dynamic right from the start. Peter says, you are the Christ. Is that true? Yes, yeah, true. Jesus, you are the Christ. Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the future king of Israel in the line of King David, the prophesied one, the one who will bring the kingdom of God to the entire world. And all of that is true. That's all true. That is who Jesus is. So, these next few verses is not a question about whether Jesus is the Messiah. That is true. What we're going to ask and what is going to be so controversial is not whether Jesus is the Messiah. He is. But what is the Messiah going to do? And we know that that's the controversial part about Jesus even today. Everybody loves Jesus. Have you ever met anybody who just says, man, I just hate that guy? I haven't. Everybody loves Jesus. That's not the controversial part. The controversial part is, what does he do? And so we see the tension here right out of the gate. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's true. Don't tell anyone right now. Being discerning. Again, if you go tell everybody, they're going to misconstrue what my mission is. He says, yeah, I'm the Messiah. And then he goes off and he talks about this term. He says, the Son of Man. You see the tension there? Peter says you're the Christ. You're right. And now let me tell you all about the Christ. I'm going to call Him the Son of Man. Why does He do that? Well, Jesus prefers to talk to Himself as the Son of Man. He does it 80 times in the Gospel. He does it 14 times in the book of Mark. Son of Man. Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. To kind of see the tension here, here's something amazing. Nobody else in the Gospel calls Jesus the Son of Man. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? So why, why, is he, why is He making this distinction? Well, probably because the Messiah, the term Messiah, the title Messiah, in that time has been twisted and bent and defined in their own image. 
So we've got the Messiah in here and we see the things that the Messiah will do and it's clear, there are clear prophecies in here about the Messiah. But what do we like to do as people? What have we seen the Pharisees and the scribes do? We like to stack our own ideas and our own laws on top of God's laws. And in doing that, the Jewish people by and large have stacked their own ideas about the Messiah. And they have transformed the term Messiah into this. Rambo. When they think about Messiah, they think of Rambo. Bandana and all. They think and they believe and they teach and they've, the disciples have grown up in this school of thought believing that the Messiah is going to come and his muscles are going to be about this big. He's going to wear a bandana and he's going to kill all the Romans and he's going to conquer the world. That's the baggage the term Messiah has come to, to carry around. We saw that when he fed the 5,000. You remember this? He feeds 5,000. He, he sets them all down on the green grass. And everybody thinks, wow, he's, he's putting us into an army. He's putting us into companies and battalions. And then he performs this great miracle. What do they, what's the crowd do? They rush him. And Scripture says, to make him king by force. That's what Messiah, the word Messiah brings. <clears throat> and so the question is, is Jesus a Messiah? Yes. The question is, how does the Messiah bring about the kingdom of God? How does the Messiah bring about the kingdom of God? A sword? That's what the disciples... You, you quiz the 12 disciples, how will the Messiah bring about the kingdom of God? They're going to all say the sword. And so Jesus tries to, tries to head that mistake off and He calls Himself the Son of Man. Son of Man was a common expression. It's a biblical term, but it's also a common expression. It's a... It's a way to use many words to humbly talk about myself. To humbly talk about myself. Especially when you talk about things like danger or my death. I, I want to I be humble about it. And so I'm going to use many words to denote I'm talking about myself. Kind of like this. The man standing before you today is starving. Who am I talking about? Me. I'm talking about me. So, Son of Man, everybody, the disciples knew that Jesus was talking about Himself, and they also knew that Jesus was talking about the biblical title, Son of Man, which also means the same, the same thing as the Messiah. It's the same guy. And it comes from Daniel 7. Listen to this about the Son of Man. And this is an incredible passage. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? That's, the, that's God the Father. Isn't that a cool term? The Ancient of Days. And was presented before Him. And here comes the Kingdom. And to Him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a Kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His Kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. 
Messiah, Son of Man. You're right to call me Messiah. I'm going to call myself the Son of Man. What's the big difference? The big difference is the disciples and the Jewish crowds are going to hear Messiah and going to think sword. What? Okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Guys, he's going to teach us plainly about his mission. Get ready. Come on, disciples. Everybody get gather around. He's going to teach us plainly for the first time. Finally, no parables. Finally, just, just put it out there for us fishermen. I want the main and plain, the bare bones. Tell us what's going to happen. Tell us about this glorious kingdom that I want to be a general in, or, or I want to be an ambassador, or I want to be a higher up guy. Tell me. Let's go. Tell us about this kingdom. We're finally there. We've seen you do incredible things. Who could stop you? So let's talk about the sword. And he began to teach them plainly that the Son of Man will be rejected. The Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must suffer. Son of Man must die. And the Son of Man must be raised again. What are you saying? Jesus, get over here! What are you saying? I've given you years of my life to follow you. And you're going to say that kind of nonsense? Maybe thinking, if, if you had talked plainly about this when you saw me on the beach that first day, you called me to be a disciple. Maybe if you've told me plainly this is what you think is going to happen to the Messiah, maybe I would have just been fishing right now and I wouldn't be bothering with you. Jesus, you know, listen, you know, there is no way the Messiah is going to be rejected by the spiritual leaders. Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the, they're the leaders who will play a vital role in the Messiah's ministry. We've known this our entire lives. I learned this in first grade. What are you talking about? Be rejected by the, by the spiritual elite? Suffer and die? Are you crazy? Suffer and die? And not just die. You're saying He's not going to die in battle on horseback, in a blaze of glory. He's going to die on the cross? Jesus, you know what crosses are for. They're for the criminals. You know what Deuteronomy says, anyone who's hung on the tree is cursed by God. So when you tell me the Messiah is going to hang on a tree, what you're saying is God is going to crush the Messiah. Criminals and heretics die on the cross. And then, Jesus, what are you doing? And then, 
We got all these disciples here. These men are following you. They've given their lives to you. And you're going to tell them the most outrageous thing of all. You're going to tell them that you're going to rise from the dead. Don't you know nobody rises from the dead until the great day of the Lord at the end of history? Don't you know that? This anger, when the word says rebuke here, get this, this, is, this, this will give us the idea of how, how Peter is really feeling here. The original language there uses the same word for rebuke here as it uses when Jesus rebukes the demons. guttural offense taken, deep moral outrage. Jesus, what do you stop saying that? Stop saying that. Listen, just just shut up. Just shut up. I gotta think about my life for a minute. But turning and seeing the disciples. So Peter pulled him aside and didn't really get too far away to do it, you know, one on one. Peter got him far enough away, all the disciples, you know, they're kind of like looking over their shoulder, kind of listening, eavesdropping. And so Jesus turns and sees the disciples and goes, Okay, Peter, what you say in public must be disciplined in public. And he says this Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. We've seen this before. There could be a tinge of temptation here. We've seen a little bit of it when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Don't worry. Listen, you're bringing the, Satan says, you're bringing the kingdom of God, Jesus. How about we do this without the cross? You worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Think about all the good things you could do with every kingdom of the world and you can forget the cross thing. Jesus, what are you talking about? The cross. You're the Messiah. Let's raise this army. Let's go get him. Nothing can stop you. Get behind me, Satan. You have abandoned the things of God for the things of men. Now, what's interesting is, we, I would imagine he would say, you've abandoned the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. You've abandoned the things of God for the things of Satan. I'd kind of imagine him saying that, but he doesn't. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. He's not saying Peter is indwelled by Satan. He's saying, you're, on Sa- you're, you're talking like you're on Satan's team. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're thinking about the things of men. What should that tell us? The minds of unregenerate men, the minds of us outside of Jesus Christ, the flesh, the, our minds, and the mind of Satan find the mission of the Son of God to be impossibly disgusting 
Satan, unregenerate men and women, we are in the same, on the same team. We are in the same army. The mission of the Son of Man has always been and will be until Jesus comes again will be impossibly disgusting to those who are perishing. It will be impossibly foolish. Think how foolish that must sound to Peter. You're just a fool. A cross? Jesus, you just made bread come out of your hands. Make a bunch of swords. Make a bunch of bows. Make a bunch of chariots. Let's run these Romans out. The good news of Jesus Christ is impossible to reconcile with man-made religion. The Son of Man will be rejected by the religious system. Now don't forget, this does not reject the Son of Man. This tells us about the Son of Man. You read Isaiah 53, you get the Son of Man is going to die. Clear as day. Isaiah 53 is called the fifth Gospel because it's so Jesus-focused. Written 400 years before Jesus. This thing talks about the Son of Man the right way, but what do we do? The Pharisees have stacked their own laws and interpretations on top of it to where they can't even see the things of God. It's impossible to reconcile the Gospel of Jesus Christ with man-made religion. Because man-made religion, I want you to act right before you belong. Are you with me? Act right before you belong. What does the Gospel of Jesus Christ say? We're going to talk about more in, the, in a minute. Ephesians 1. You were predestined before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come and grab you and you belong and then He teaches you to behave. You belong before you behave. It's impossible for religious systems. The good news of Jesus Christ is impossibly embarrassing. I'm following a man. Now, we get the idea that Jesus explains to them the cross because He uses the cross here in a few verses. He explains to them the cross. He's going to die. He's going to die on the cross. It's, can you imagine the embarrassment going through these guys' minds? My uncle back home said I was a fool for leaving everything and following this man. And then this man tells me he's going to be paraded through Jerusalem carrying the cross beam of the cross being spit on. Gave up my life for you. He'll be hung on a tree as if God has cursed him. The good news of Jesus Christ is embarrassing to the flesh. God's wrath? Talk about, what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God poured out on sinners. Clear in Scripture. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Lord, may the cup pass from me the cup of what? The cup, Old Testament, is the wrath of God. He's going to take, he's going to drink to the dregs the wrath of God that should be poured out on you and me. That's the wrath? This is 2020. 
We don't talk about the wrath of God. That's for pilgrims talked about the wrath of God. That's embarrassing. That kind of language is so passe. It's it's impossibly embarrassing. Jesus, this is impossibly offensive. You're saying that I am so sinful that it takes the sacrifice of the Son of Man to pay the price for my sins? That's offensive. It's offensive. I'll never forget this. It comes up every time we talk about this. I'll never forget one of the first sermons I preached my first year as a pastor. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. An old gal stood up in the very back, I can remember her face, and said, No! That's not true! My religious ideas are wrong. God tells me to repent. And how about some of us Are some of us here? The Gospel of Jesus Christ is too good to be true. Do we sit there? I am saved from the wrath of God by grace through faith. It's a free gift. That's too good to be true. I need to work for something. I need to earn something. It's too good to be true. God is so merciful that Jesus would die for me. That's too good to be true. Perhaps in the back of Peter's mind is when he's being paraded down the street in Jerusalem, am I going to be next? The Gospel of Jesus Christ is impossibly risky. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says it this way, For the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. He says Jews demand a sign. You remember this from a couple weeks ago? Pharisees come. Jesus makes bread out of nothing. Pharisees come, they say, we know you have the power, we want a sign that this is really from God. Jews demand a sign. Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And notice how notice what he says here. He says, He doesn't say, I'm going to speak plainly. The Son of Man will be rejected, will suffer and die, and rise again three days later. And this is just a good idea. This is just one option. Who's got some other ideas? He doesn't say that. How does he say it? tells him plainly, the Son of Man must be rejected. Must suffer. Must die. Must rise again. Meaning, 
It is necessary. It is impossible for the Son of Man not to suffer, not to be rejected, not to die, and not to rise again. It is impossible for those things not to happen. Why? There's probably a lot of musts. I'm going to give you two. There's two musts. Why? It is the will of God the Father since before the foundation of the world for God the Son to die for sinners and rise again. The will of God the Father before the world was created was that the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, dies for sinners. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was the Father's will since before the foundation of the world. The cross is plan A. Are you with me? Sometimes we get that mixed up. And we say, no, plan A was perfect life in the garden, and so we've got to settle for the cross. That's not the plan. The plan is that God the Father shows His mercy to the praise of His glorious grace, says Ephesians, to the praise of His glorious grace. The the Father will send the Son to save sinners. And that world is more glorious, more joyful, more righteous, and better than if we stayed in the Garden of Eden forever. Think about that. He must. It is the will of the Father. And it is the will of the Son to joyfully do the will of the Father. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, Christ was destined to die. Before the mountains were made, before the trees were created, before man was created, before the stars were created, the plan was for Christ to save sinners. And here's even even better. It gets better and better. And that Ephesians passage says it was the plan before the foundation of the world. And guess what? He says, you, Christian, were predestined to be adopted sons and daughters before the foundation of the world. How great is that? That means, can you lose it? No. What glorious grace is this? What glorious grace is this? It's the will of the Father, so Jesus must. Because Jesus came and His desire was to do the will of the Father. Hebrews 10, consequently, when Christ came into the world, He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Then He said, behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. It's the will of the, found, of the Father from the foundation of the world. Peter, it's the will of God the Father, says before the foundation of the world. Who do you think you are to try to derail that plan? The will of God the Father is like a freight train, and Peter's like a mosquito. Can he derail that freight train? No. Christian, again, how great is that for you? The will of God the Father, Christian, is that you were predestined for the foundation of the world that you would be called sons and daughters of God by grace through your faith in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, that freight train has left the station and you are on it. What sin of yours can derail that freight train? Nothing. You are safe and secure. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That great news. That's great news. 
Who are you, Peter, to try to derail this train? Why must? Second must. The mission of the Son of Man is how God, the Father, is both just and the justifier. So, have you ever thought about this? How can the infinitely holy God, tri-holy God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, tri-holy God, perfect in all things, glory like the blazing sun, holiness like the blazing sun. Scripture says we can, sinners cannot stand in the presence of God. How can that God let sinners into His presence without just saying, you know what, sin's not that such a big deal after all. How can He do that? God in His very nature is just. That means He must be just. Can't He just let sin go? Can't He just get over it? No. One finite sin of mine against an infinitely holy God is infinitely evil. Okay, well, let's just draw a line. Let's just have, let's just say, okay, this is the, this is the sin line and this is for the rest of us and we'll just get on this and then we can all go to heaven and, and have fun and, and not be a big deal. We'll put some of the really bad sin there. What, who's over the line? Who gets over the line into that sinfulness? Is it, is Hitler over there? Yeah, Hitler's over there. What about a murderer? Yeah, murderer. That's real sin you gotta deal with, God. What about adultery? Uh, some of us will go, yeah, that gives us, some of us will go, well, I don't know. And it gets even murkier when we say adultery. Okay, adultery. Well, adultery, Jesus comes and He tells us, if you've ever lusted after anyone in your mind, you're an adulterer. And then I think we all go, wait, okay, no, not, not adultery. Where is the line? The truth, is the, the truth of the matter is our sin is more devastating and more deeply evil than we know. By the grace of God, it's, we don't know. Can you imagine if we did know? So for God not to punish all evil, all sin, is for God not to be absolutely righteous and just. Nahum 1 says this, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is just. But God is also a justifier. God delights in declaring the repentant Sinner righteous by faith. It's always been true. God delights in forgiving repentant sinners. He delights in that. He loves that. We see that from the very beginning. Genesis 15, Abraham believed on the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He loves forgiving sinners. He loves declaring sinners righteous. He says this in Ezekiel 33, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God loves forgiving sinners. He loves justifying sinners, declaring them righteous. So He must punish evil, and He loves to forgive sinners. How do these things come together? Numbers 14 shows this, 
this supposed paradox. He says this, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. How do these things come together? How can God be just and the justifier of sinners? God put forward Jesus. Paul says in Romans 3, He put forward Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus must suffer He must be rejected. He must die on the cross. And He must rise again so that God the Father can be just against our sin and yet still justify sinners by faith. This is what that looks like. He is just in that our sins, Christian, do not go unpunished. When Jesus died on the cross, He drank the cup of the wrath of God for sinners who have faith in Him. He drank the wrath of God for our sins. He took your sin, Christian. It was imputed to Him. He was taking credit for your sin when He died on the cross. That way, every single sin you ever committed, you ever will commit, has been punished. So no one will say, well, you got away with X sin. You say, my sin was Paid for. But it's still you. You did it. I am now a new creation in Christ. And as we are joyful in that truth, we're also sad. Because as we sang, it's my sins that held Him there. The fullness of the wrath of the righteous God towards sinners was poured out on Jesus. He was just. Isaiah 53 says it was the will of God to crush Him. But in the cross, God the Father and willingly God the Son offers justification, offers salvation, offers to wipe us clean of our sin by grace through faith. How can God be just and the justifier? Crushing our sin on the back of a willing sacrifice and then offering you grace through faith in Jesus. Justice and mercy. Righteousness and grace come together in the must of the Son of Man. So Peter, you don't know what you're asking for. For anything else to happen would not be the will of God the Father. To ask for anything else to happen would not be justice and mercy. Peter, you want want Jesus to come kick out the Romans? How is that going to help your eternity? We're going to see next time. Peter, how you, you get the whole world and lose your soul. That's how Rambo Messiah will do for you. You don't know what you're asking, Peter. 
And then this prophecy Jesus makes about His rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection we see unfold in the book of Mark. Be rejected. The men who were self-proclaimed gatekeepers of God's revelation to mankind, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, have not only rejected Jesus, but call Him demonically inspired, and they will get Him killed. Be rejected. Jesus will be rejected by the crowds who once swarmed to Him by the thousands until He starts saying, I'm God. And I must be so close to you that it's like you eat my body and drink my blood. And he's going to tell us in a paragraph, take up your own cross if you want to follow me. What do the crowds do? They're gone. Rejected. The disciples who have dedicated their lives to Jesus, who try to be His champion and say, we will never leave you, Jesus. You keep going. We're going to be your guys. I'm going to be your ambassador. I'm going to be your general. You keep going. These disciples will abandon Jesus. Will reject Jesus in His hour of need. Famously, Peter will reject he even knew who Jesus was. He will be rejected. He will, be, he will suffer and be killed Christian apologetics and research ministry says this about Jesus' suffering Jesus' suffering began in the garden of Gethsemane where the pressure of the cross and the wrath of God towards sin would be poured out on the son of man in the garden this pressure would result in the rare occurrence of tiny blood capillaries in the sweat glands rupturing causing an oozing of blood to occur throughout Jesus' skin. After His arrest in the garden, Jesus was blindfolded and punched repeatedly in the face. Being blindfolded mean, meant Jesus couldn't roll with the punches. And His face would be so destroyed by this be beating, the Bible says that He could be barely recognized. Next, Jesus was stripped of His clothes and then scourged. And scourging a soldier who trains for this, a soldier would use a whip consisting of leather straps embedded with metal and glass fragments with small metal balls sewn into the end of each, each, each strip. The whip was brought down with force and when it struck against the body of Jesus, it'd be ripped out and all those metal and glass would rip the skin from His back, exposing muscle and often bones. This would happen to Jesus 39 times. Then they stripped Him, put a scarlet robe on His back, and placed a crown of thorns on His head. They pound the crown of thorns in His head, causing further blood to come down and pour into His eyes. And this purple robe, this scarlet robe would later be ripped off of His back that had been exposed. and So it would start to congeal on the robe and He'd rip it off. Jesus was forced to carry His own cross through the streets being spit on and being mocked. The picture of rejection. Total rejection in Jerusalem. The city of God. Total rejection. 
He was then nailed to a cross beam. Normally a person was laid down upon the cross beam and a nail was driven into one wrist. Then the other hand was pulled very tightly and another nail driven into the other wrist. The nails were usually about six to eight inches long. Placing the nail in the wrists severs the median nerve resulting in burning pain as well as paralysis of the hand. Once Jesus was lifted onto the cross, His feet were nailed to it. Once suspended the force of gravity as that crossbeam was put in place, brings the weight of the body down and shoulders and elbows dislocate by popping out of joint, ripping ligaments. Because of the outstretched position of His arms, it was very difficult to breathe. They had to pull up on those dislocated shoulders and elbows to get a single breath. And as your body does not receive enough oxygen and you breathe faster and faster and faster, your heart tries to compensate by, by beating faster and faster and faster until eventually the heart of our Savior ruptures in His chest. And this was, Christian, this was to bring you a heavenly inheritance as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that, that will of the Father for you to be His child, to, be, to glorify His name by showing grace to sinners through this, the will of God the Father was more precious than, a king, than the whole world to Jesus. But if Jesus was just a man, He stays dead. If Jesus is just a man, He's of no use to us. If Jesus just stayed on the cross and died and was buried and that was it, He is of no consequence. If Jesus stays buried, He's just another religious leader that taught us maybe some good things about being nice to each other, but that's it. I got a million of those. Oprah can give me that. Here's my biggest need, Jesus. If you claim to be the Son of Man, you die on the cross. If you stay dead, you, you're no good to me because this is my biggest need. I need someone to take care of death for me. In the grand scheme of things, nothing else matters. If you can't take care of death for me, what's the point? If you can't fix my death problem, you've really got nothing for me. If you teach me to live a good life, doesn't matter. If you teach me to be happy, doesn't matter. If you teach me to be nice, doesn't matter. If all these things are, you teach me and I still die with no hope after death, what good is it to me? And Jesus, you've said that you can make me right with God. If you stay dead, you can't. So, God the Father reveals Jesus to be the answer to all our questions in the most spectacular way. Our greatest universal enemy, death, could not hold the Son of Man. And the same man that Jesus calls Satan the same disciples who think you're crazy, you're nuts. These are the same men 
who will see this spectacular display of the Son of Man being who He said He is. Paul tells us, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter. Think about the grace of God here. He appears to Peter, the one who was in league with Satan just a few short moments before he rises from the dead. He's in league with Satan, and yet Jesus appears to him. What grace and mercy. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them. Go ask them. The Son of Man is who He says He is. The Son of Man does what He says He will do. The Son of Man offers to provide for you grace and mercy and being right with God. Jesus will say this in John 11. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Jesus will say this in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. How can we trust Him with that? We can trust Him because He's the Son of Man. He died on the cross and suffered for us. And God raised Him back to life again. Christian, rest in the assurance of your salvation Non-believer, what is stopping you? What excuse could you give that Peter hasn't already given? Have faith in Jesus.